Hello, Australia. Welcome to episode 13 of the Layback Podcast. I'm Jackson Allen, and this is a podcast about Australian climbers and Australian climbing stories. Firstly, I would like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the lands on which we live, work, and climb. I pay my respects to elders past, present, and emerging. Recently, while in Nowra, I had the privilege of sitting down with New South Wales South Coast climber Sabine Pratt Hunziker to record this podcast. Sabine came to climbing from a background in surfing, and we talk all about the crags and the climbing community on the South Coast before getting into the main focus of the podcast. That is, the story of her recovery from a climbing accident that she had while climbing in New Zealand a few years ago. It's the story of how Sabine suffers a total loss of control through injuries sustained from the accident. She shares her experience both candidly and honestly, taking us to the depths of an induced coma and through the mental and physical struggle that she endures as she emerges from it. Over the months that follow, through sheer grit and determination, Sabine takes back control of her mind and her body to return to her children, to her profession of teaching, and to her passion, climbing. Let's get into it. Tell me, how did you discover climbing? Well, it was sort of by chance, actually. I once, um, in Switzerland, when I was back in Switzerland, a friend of ours took me climbing, and then I moved to Australia, to Streaky Bay, and there was ocean, desert, but no climbing, because I really liked it that one time that I tried it, but I sort of forgot about it, and then um, I got into surfing with my ex-husband. He, he lived for surfing, and... Um, Surfing just ruled our life. We did everything we did was about surfing. When we talked about holidays, we didn't even discuss, uh, are we going to go somewhere where they surf? We knew that was the thing. And then um, when I divorced from my ex-husband, I still surfed, but I I felt that my mojo had sort of gone a bit and um, I wasn't sure whether it was just because surfing belonged to my life with my ex-husband. And it it just gave me a feeling that I hardly ever had before surfing. It was just so fulfilling. It's hard to describe in words. It was more than a sport. It was sort of a lifestyle. And I was sort of looking for something that could give me the same thing. And I went and tried mountain biking a bit, which was fun, but it never gave me the same feeling as surfing. And then I had a mountain bike stack um, in the middle of Kosciuszko National Park. And I... It, it, um, my left shoulder was quite badly hurt. I had to have surgery, so I couldn't ride a bike. I couldn't surf. And then the guy that I was with at that time was a climber, but he had sort of a break from climbing. And I asked him, could you take me climbing? Can I just come on top rope? So I had my arm, couldn't use my left arm, but he took me top roping at um, Tianjara Falls. And that first time there, it just... I recognized that feeling that surfing had given me prior and I was hooked even though I couldn't really do anything <laughs> with my um, broken shoulder but it was just something about it the the adrenaline or the the challenge and the different aspects of physical aspects and mental aspects 
and I was just addicted. And from then on, even with my shoulder, I went every weekend and started climbing and got into it more and more. And that was sort of how I got into climbing. You went into it with this level of intensity that you also had with surfing in the past. Uh, what is it about you? Why do you think you have that level of intensity <laughs> for for a sport or a, or a, I mean, do we call climbing a sport if we call it a lifestyle, so to speak, like you described surfing? Um, it's a good question. Um. I am a little bit obsessive or I've got that personality that when I like something, I dive into it fully. I don't like doing things half. So if I do something, bang, I want to do it as well as I can. And it is um, not sure. I've always had that attraction to something that scares me a bit. Like in Switzerland, I was a horse rider and I went to Iceland and bought this wild horse and she just took off it was a mare a young mare every time i went riding with her and i was sort of a bit scared of her but really like that just that feeling of of living of that of um that energy and with surfing i grew up in a landlocked country the ocean is not natural to me so this i was always switzerland yeah switzerland right? was always a bit of oh, something new so i was never a super brave surfer but i loved it and i loved that fear and it was much quicker the sort of the adrenaline, it was fast. You had that one chance, the wave comes and then it's gone. And with climbing, I had, in a different way, it was the climb is always there, you can go back. And in a way, I really like that you can sort of, at first, when you get to a climb, it looks impossible. And then you start to figure out the puzzle and just figuring something out and still being scared. <laughs> and um, then, being able to control that fear in a way and one of the best things for me is especially in climbing when when I'm when I manage to get into what we call the zone or the flow where you're almost like in a for me it's you're almost like in a bubble and nothing else exists apart from you and the, the next two meters of rock and the, the the moves in a way flow and you don't have to really think about it and it's just everything else is is away. There's nothing else th else there. And maybe I also like it because I have a job that's quite taxing. I work with traumatized kids and you're sort of <laughs> confronted with quite extreme things sometimes. And then the, the, the climbing, yes, it is scary, but sometimes it just wipes everything off that happens in your life apart from you and the rock. And I really, really like that. And the people that you meet. And the places you go, <laughs> everything, it's so good. <laughs> indeed, indeed. What type of climber are you? What sort of climbing do you do? Anything that's fun that scares me, you know. Um, I've changed a bit. Like, I got into trout climbing quite early. Like, I started with sport, but got into trout climbing quite early, which I love as well. So I would say sports and, and trout. I um, never did bouldering full uh, as fanatically as the other two parts. Now, these days, I probably can't do bouldering anymore because of my shoulder and my body. It's a bit too taxing. I used to love roof climbs, which I can't really do at the moment as well either. So I have to more go on to technical face climbing or slabs, but really, one of my favorite places are Rapalis, so in Victoria, so trout climbing, love it. 
but the whole place there it's it's very uh, magical and always the people that you meet there are part of it sort of to the, the climbing community that always goes to um to Rapalis. um but yeah i would say sport and triath probably and i did want to get a feel from you about the south coast climbing scene and what it's like to be a climber here and what it's like to start climbing and what the different areas are like uh so tell me a bit about Nara for maybe those in parts of australia that wouldn't mm-hmm know as much about it mm-hmm. well actually the first thing that sort of surprised me about nara was i perceived that there weren't that many local climbers like even now before i came here i sort of thought thought about it and i think there's maybe about 20 local climbers and a lot of climbs come from canberra in winter when it's narrow season from sydney or even the blue mountains wollongong but that's what i sort of thought there wasn't that local climbing scene that I perceive in the Blue Mountains or, or somewhere else a bit. And then the, the climbing is, it's quite well-known narrow for um, the burly, bouldery sport, climbing steep, not the nicest picturesque crack sometimes <laughs> in town. But then when you go to New Nara, I really love those cracks, which you drive 20 minutes out of town and it's beautiful. And one of my favorites is Point Perp. And Point Perp started as a trad um, climbing destination. It's now, I don't know what the percentage would be, but you can have a good day just sport climbing there as well. But just Point Perp with the, the scenery, the ocean there, the cliffs, the sea life or marine life that you can see, that's probably, um, it's quite diverse. Like in Nara itself, the town cracks are really well known for, for the, the difficult sport climbing, but you can have a diverse um, approach if you go wander around a bit to New Nara or Point Perp, which I really like. Was Point Perp your first trad climbing experience? Yes, it was. We went to Point Perp and that was my first trad climbing experience. I think Yardarm there, those 14, 15s. And then about two months later, we went to Rapalis. Yeah, so that was all in the first sort of three months of me climbing. Obviously seconded a lot at the Rapalis, but I, I did, which I was so proud of me, I um, led some of the pitches at the lamplight to the mm. ominous 14, <laughs> where everybody nearly wheezed themselves on that last pitch. I mean, the, the sort of beginners who think, yeah, 14, that should be okay. But um, yeah, so I really liked that, that I had that sort of start because one day I remember we were climbing at um, Thompson's Point in Nara, and this guy came came walking along the the base of the cliff, and he was super friendly. Started talking to us, and it was Rick Phillips. And Rick Phillips is sort of for me quite a name in um, Nara. He bolted a lot of routes, developed a lot of routes, also. And uh, there's probably not many people who know Point Perp better than him and I he became a very close friend of mine and the climbing buddy so with him I climbed very often at Point Perp and sort of got into this the easy triad climbs there mm. you still surf as well not anymore not anymore no no mm. I as I said I, I haven't really surfed for about eight years I tried for about two years after my divorce and it it just something really changed in I didn't want it to change, but it just did. The mojo was gone. And then a year ago when we were locked down, 
or not allowed to come here to Nara for me because of COVID, I thought oh, I'll try and surf again. And it was it was funny surfing. Oh, I've got vertigo that comes and goes since my accident. I've got two metal rods in my spine. And when I was lying on the surfboard, that was the only sport that I actually could feel the rods in my spine. And it just didn't feel good. And I, you have to be quick to get up in, in surfing. So I got stuck on my knee a couple of times. Every time I sort of jumped up, I had a vertigo attack and the balance was out. It just, it wasn't, didn't really work. <laughs> and the extension of the, the upper back didn't really work. It was just, maybe when I'm 60, 70, I'll get a mal and <laughs> surf some really small waves, but I don't know. I'm not missing it as much because I've got the climbing. Yeah. The climbing has completely filled what um, surfing had given me before. And getting on that mail wouldn't have that challenge no. aspect to it, right? <laughs> no. As you say, it's, it's no. a different sort of pastime. Uh, I am curious, as a side note, to ask you about surfing and comparing surfing culture to climbing culture. What would you be, see the similarities and differences maybe being, if we can wander off into that. Briefly. Yeah. Well, the one thing that I never really liked about surfing um, was the crowds. And I, I started surfing in South Australia, Streaky Bay, in Cactus, and they're sort of like Indo waves, but in in, um, in Australia, m amazing quality. I had to wait there until it was small enough for me, but. The crowds were not there like often you were happy to see someone else in the water because if a shark comes at least you've got someone who could <laughs> paddle you in or something so or then it's a 50 50 yeah, chance exactly. right? <laughs> that's a bigger snack over there <laughs> um and where we are now the, the the surfing was way more at my level user-friendly there were beach breaks streaky bay was all reef breaks but Surfing is probably the most selfish sport in a way because there's one wave, you don't know when the next wave is going to come and everybody wants to get, get it. And usually if you've got a good crew, then um, a good crowd, there's certain etiquette, you don't drop in, you don't snake, but there, it can take one person mm -hmm. who ruins the whole thing for everybody. Mm -hmm. And with Browley, where I live, getting a bit more and more busy or busier than... Um, a lot of people come down who don't have that etiquette, who just behave however they want to in the water. And it really frustrated me. So that's what I like about climbing. Yes, you're, the climb that you work can be taken, but in half an hour, it'll be free. So it's always there and that's what I like. The similarity in a way is I think, I like both communities. Um, maybe the surf community was even a bit more male dominant than the climbing communities. I don't know. I've probably come across more really strong female climbers than I have come across really female uh, strong female surfers, but that might have just been the location, I don't know. Um, but yeah, the community feel in both um, communities were pretty similar. Surfers maybe smoked a bit more weed. <laughs> is, is that because it doesn't interfere with performance as much? Maybe, I don't or? know, it was just sort of the thing, you go have a surf, come out, come in, have a nap, smoke a joint, then when you feel good again, go back out. And with climbing, it was a bit different. I don't know why it is. I don't mm. know. 
Maybe there's a safety aspect <laughs> there well. with climbing where people want to be a little bit, you know. But having said that, you know, there's certainly a culture uh, in some parts of uh, climbing where that's that's the done thing. Absolutely. I think yeah. Boulder is in Colorado yeah. into that sort of yes, thing. Yes, yes. <laughs> <laughs> no, well, thank, thanks for the, the detail on uh, on surfing. One thing that I'm eager to understand and, and, and to discuss with you and, and flesh out is your accident and the impact that's had on your life, your climbing. But maybe before we get to that, how long ago did you start climbing? Was it- I started when I was 42, so six years ago. Okay. I don't know the year. <laughs> 2014. Uh, or 15, I don't know. And how many years had you been climbing before you had your accident? Um, About four or five years. Four or yep. five years. Yeah. Okay. Tell me about the accident. What happened? Mm. Well, I... Don't remember a lot. Um, when I woke up in the hospital, I had no idea. Like the medical staff told me I had an accident. I was like, what? They said I had a climbing accident. I had no idea who with, where. I didn't even know where I was or really who I was. But then because I was so sick and the staff didn't know if I was going to survive because I um, had sepsis that really rattled me my liver and kidneys didn't work anymore so my brother decided to come over and he helped retrieve my phone that was still a pains fort i was in christchurch in hospital and one day he came to my hospital bed and brought my phone and i had photos of the day of the accident on my phone and that just suddenly triggered my memory and i still don't know exactly how it happened or what happened but I remembered the people that I was with and where I was and we so we were a pain sport a sort of a sport climbing destination that's sort of South the, Island. the tip of the South Island yep. right yeah mm. and it was I remember it was really warm and I previous to that I was I have to say I was traveling alone in New Zealand but I had different friends in different spots that I was going to catch up with and I was with a friend um in the darrens and we climbed there but i felt a bit under the weather i wasn't feeling too good sort of half a head cold so i left earlier and i planned to go to painsford and i knew that some of my friends were going to be there but i also knew i was going to be there a few days earlier than them but thought i'll just either chill by the river or find someone and the first day i got there i found um, a group of three and I started climbing with them. And then on the day of the accident, it was about the third day that we had climbed. It was super hot. We were all a bit tired. And there's something at um, Painsford where you do 18 18s in a day. So we decided to do that that day. And I remember that in the morning we had done 12 18s. And we were sort of sitting by the river. All of us were a bit sort of, ah, oh, the river is looking really enticing, <laughs> fresh and cold. But we decided to go on and um, we swapped leads. So I led one climb, the next time the other person uh, led the climb and it was my turn to second. So I went up, can't remember climbing, but I remember being at the anchor and 
I remember that I spoke to the people below. They couldn't see me because the, the climb had a bit of a bulge. So I yelled down um, are both of my ends on the ground because in New Zealand you, you wrap down, you don't get lowered as the climber. They said yes, and I remember that I had a really long safety line clipped in, and I always test my ATC before I take the safety off. And I remember yelling down something like, I'm just gonna try if I could pull myself up so I've got all my weight on the ATC without having to take the safety off yet. And I remembered as I sort of reached around and felt a really positive jug and pulled myself up and that was the last thing. The one of the guys who was with me came and visit, visited me in hospital later on when I was maybe up after three or four weeks when I was conscious again. And he said, we don't know what happened. You just suddenly you came flying down. Yeah, free fall with everything. And the only thing is about four months later when I was back at home and I unpacked my, my climbing pack, I saw that the beaner of my safety line was snapped open towards the outside. So it was the gate was open out, but for that to happen, it would have been had to be cross-loaded, I think. So I'm really, I don't know what happened. I I assume it was a mixture between gear failure and human error, because usually I never rely on one bolt. But what I've done in the past is, because the climbs weren't very difficult, sometimes I have unclipped myself quickly and maybe changed something when I thought oh, I've got good stance. It's a couple of seconds I can do that. So the enemy is complacency, not not um, fear really. And I think maybe I was too complacent with something, relied on something where it was loaded incorrectly and I sat down on that and it just came flying. I, I really don't know. Don't mm. know if I want to know either. <laughs> Sometimes the mind will hide mm. the memory. A hundred percent. When you don't want yep. it. Yep. Mm. Tell me about the physical impact. What, mm. what were the injuries that you sustained from the fall? Mm. Well... The worst one was I had, through the blunt impact, my aorta cracked, but luckily a blood clot um, formed around the crack. I had my pelvis was pulverized on both sides. It was worse on the, the right side. I had my spine was broken in the lumbar region, only the transverse processes, so the, the muscle attachments. But in the thoracic region from T3 to T8, I've got um, the rods because the bodies were crushed. I've had pretty much every rib broken in more than one place. I had my sternum broken, I had my clavicle broken, I had my scapula broken. And I had, um, I must have fallen on the left side because I had lost feeling and strength in my left arm and hand, so I couldn't use my left arm and hand. Then I had some minor, um, a few stitches in my head, but um, yeah, from between the pelvis and my neck was pretty much mashed and I had a bilateral pneumothorax. Yeah, it was just pretty, pretty bad. That's yeah. a, a long list mm. of breakages. How long were you in hospital for? 
I had different places. So I was in a coma for about two to three weeks. Then after a month, I was repatriated to Canberra. And then um, after nine weeks, in total nine weeks, I was transferred to a rehab hospital where I stayed for another, um, until it was a total of about four months. So about four months, 15 weeks or so maybe, yeah. They put you in an induced coma because of the state of your injuries. Mm -hmm. The stay in itself, you know, when I hear you tell me about the accident and you've told me about the experience of being in hospital and then trying to rehabilitate your, your body and your mind, it did come across to me as this marathon challenge of that required a significant amount of mental energy and strength and can you take us through what it was like to be in the coma and and coming out of that i get goosebumps just talking thinking about it <laughs> no um yeah so my i thought about that my journey actually started with the nightmares or hallucinations i've talked to my psychologist about it she reckons there were hallucinations that was the first thing like i've got life a before the accident and then life b that starts with the accident and it started with those hallucinations and it was just two three weeks of um of mind torture it was being in different situations it was almost always about my children that i was I had lost my children, I had to find my children, I couldn't find my children, all my children were in imminent danger, I couldn't protect my children. Uh, it was from, I actually read it, um, wrote it all down and I read through my notes before I came up to see you. So it was, it was always dark and it, we were in a, in a, a weird scenery where it was, it was like a room, but it was about 30 meters high. And the bottom of the room was a jungle and we were in a convertible. I was in a convertible and I had a driver who who drove me and I kept asking where are my children. And he just sort of kept avoiding my, my question. And then we came to a, a massive, massive iron gate and it was pitch black behind there. And in a way we knew back behind that gate was something really really bad really really dangerous and then that that danger sort of took on the form of a like a massive bull but a bull higher than this room that we are so higher than three meters and it kept headbutting that iron gate and um we knew if it made made it through that gate we'd all be dead and it was just always that certainty of that imminent death and I knew my kids could be there. I don't know where my kids are. I need to find my kids. And the people around me kept telling me, don't worry about the kids. And I was like, how? I have to find my kids. So that was one scenario or, or different scenarios. It was always um, just trying to find my kids and death being so close. And another thing that was always sort of there was metal clunking. So it was either that metal clunking from that bull um, ramming the, the gate another metal clunking I've told you on the phone once was um, when I was trapped in the car 
and we heard the people trying to light the car up with with fuel and we were trapped inside and i don't know whether that metal clunking was something from the surgery something from the helicopter that took me into um the hospital because what i've experienced or what i've learned to know is coma doesn't mean you you don't perceive anything you can't communicate to the outer world but you can sense things and i integrated certain things that happened to me um into my nightmares and i think i just was at different levels of um close to either death or close to life and that sort of changed and i remember when i was i remember that i was in a in a, a room where they did some treatments on me and I had I knew that every time they came in and gave me injections my nightmares came back and I that lady came in and she and I said to her I, I don't want to have those treatments anymore and she said oh we just think you're tired and gave me that needle and off I went to the next um, hallucination so you were hallucinating the person giving you the injection but I think it must have been it was actually happening at the same yeah. time mm. or another time was when I think I told you I had a septum piercing and I had a nose piercing and um earring oh yeah ears earrings and they obviously had to take them all out and I remember that grotesque figure hovering above me and it was to me that person had was all in white all white and had like a like the carnival of Venice the of Venice the those face masks often had those weird noses mm. and that person had that and he was hovering over me and had some pliers in his hands and wanted to take my septum piercing out and I just didn't want that to happen and I remember that I fought as hard as I could but how can I fight my, my shell my body was broken I couldn't move but I remember that was really I hated him doing that and I could then he looked at me once he's had it out and it was just that complete loss of control which is um i think is part in um in any trauma you, you lose control whether you're witnessing something that you couldn't help whether you even did something that you lost control about yourself or whether something was done to you it's that loss of control and i felt that in all of my hallucinations is i was out of control i had no say of what was happening to me and I think my worst one that wasn't a hallucination but of that that feeling of complete vulnerability was um, for me when um when I was on the ICU and 99% of the nurses were really good and really understanding but some of them were quite young and I, I, one night I had a new nurse or to me she was new she might have been there before but I didn't realize and um, on the ICU they have a desk at the bottom of your bed hospital bed and they're supposed to be there and watch you unless they have their break and someone else comes or if they go to the toilet quickly they tell the nurse next at the next bed keep an eye on, on her and on the opposite wall where I could look was a clock and it was a night shift and this nurse disappeared from my from my bed and I could see her that she was she was still in the room but she wasn't with me and for me it was a horrible feeling because at that stage they had just taken 
Um, I had a tracky, so a cut in my throat, and because I couldn't breathe on my own, they had just taken it out, so I was breathing on my own, but I still had oxygen, and um, I couldn't move, I couldn't speak, I couldn't do anything, and I, the only thing that I had was a little suction thing that I used to um, suction. Uh, excessive saliva out of my mouth because I couldn't really swallow very well either because I had had a tube down my throat for so long I wasn't allowed to eat even though it was out couldn't speak and that was the only way I could alert the nurse if something was wrong I couldn't reach the beeper or something that fell down but the ICU is quite um, noisy you hear the beeping of machines the humming buzzing of machines coughing wheezing so I felt that I was completely abandoned and I felt so fragile in my body where I could not do anything. And she had left me and I saw on the clock that she had gone for an hour. And um, for me, it was a really, one of the worst experiences that I had because I felt so utterly vul vulnerable, not being able to change anything, not being able to communicate, please come and look at me. Just your presence makes me feel safe. And then finally she came back and I um, sort of gestured for her to come to me because if someone is really, really close to me, maybe that 10 centimetres away from me, I could without a voice whisper. But I was so um, weak that after two, three words, I was really exhausted. So I tried to tell her something. I can't remember the words, something along the lines of, please don't leave, please don't leave me. And... The nurse next door, uh, next door, next bed, sort of realized that something was going on. And she was a very young nurse as well. And she sort of said to my nurse, oh, I wouldn't let her tell you what to do. We, we're going to have our pizza now. And they often, the young nurses had sort of like a pizza night, which is okay as long as they did their job. But that the reaction of them, of not taking it seriously or not realizing how vulnerable and uh, exposed someone is um, was completely at, at the mercy of that nurse was horrible and then in the morning I tried to tell her tell the other nurse the, the shift change nurse that I don't want to have you anymore and she said yeah I will tell her and I watched her and she didn't tell her and again just that feeling of it was like in a Kafka have you ever read Kafka? No. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Where you're just completely out of, out of control, stuff happens in your life and it's shit and you can't do anything about it. So it was, uh, for a long time, that was my, my sense of, I'm here in a broken shell, I can't talk, I can't move, I can't let anyone know what's going on. And that was a really not a good, not a good place to be and I think I've told you on on them on the phone really the, the the metaphor sort of what I can say is if you go through something that causes post-traumatic stress or a trauma it is in a way you've seen hell it, that can be either in your body it can be in your mind but you've been to a place where you didn't realize that existed and that has a massive a massive impact on 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 me in every aspect I've told you before, like uh, a lot of people who've had post-traumatic stress, look at how they interact with other people, look at how what kind of emotional connections they have to other people. And I think a lot of them are very scared to let other people close because you've seen something that 
is so in a way overwhelming or horrible that makes it hard for you to let someone in because if you're close to someone those vulnerabilities come come up and for me one of the hardest things that um i had to face but only a bit later on was the guilt the guilt towards my children what i put them through that was even now is probably the hardest thing um as i said when my ki my kids were told look your mum might not make it over the next few days because of the sepsis uh if you want to say goodbye to her come and fly to new zealand so my ex-husband brought them to new zealand at the same time as my brother was in new zealand and um before they let him in they took him into a room and said look your mum is asleep we keep her asleep she's full of machines uh, she looks different i was completely yellow i was like like mustard jaundice yeah mm. because my liver didn't work anymore and they told my family they gave them a journal and said write down a journal in a way to sort of work through their emotions and stuff and um my family did they put polaroids photos in there and their thoughts and when they had already left my children could only stay for a week luckily enough when they left i was awake and was just able to talk a few sentences but i was i was high for for two months mm. i mean that i was on such strong medication i was on morphine i was on ketamine i was on everything so i think a lot of that also sort of made me not realize actually what happened but once the dr drugs came down and i was a bit clearer i looked at that journal and one of the there were two things that really struck me one was seeing the photos me looking like a vegetable like passed out with um tubes going down my nose down my throat down my neck where they cut my neck and my my children holding me and yeah see the, the faces of my children then that was probably the worst thing for me to know what i put them through and then my my daughter um she wrote something like my mum was the best mum so it was in past tense and i was like what did i do what did i do to my children that and then it sort of when this came up it was a a really really hard thing to to um own i did it like it was i chose that kind of lifestyle to do those things and it's see what it's done to my kids and i then the sort of the uh, i had a lot of sobbing attacks where it just sobbed and sobbed and sobbed because of that guilt and um luckily luckily i am um, previous to my accident i had um seen a psychologist for different things when i went through divorce and stuff and she was so amazing she's oh without her i wouldn't be where i'm now really and she offered to have skype um sessions with her and i remember when i had one of those sobbing fits and she talked me through and then um, helped me with with them um, coping with that guilt but that that is definitely the hardest thing now i mean my kids they used to come to the crag every weekend with me 
nah, don't want to know anything um, about it. My my son is still sort of, oh, why do you rock climb? And every time I go climbing, I, it is in my head, I have to I have to get back to my kids in one piece. So that's always there. But, and I have, I have copped a little bit of criticism from some people, not from the climbing community. I think we all sort of understand that climbing is not just a selfish thing. It's not just, it's not just I want to do it because it's just fun. It's, it gives me meaning. It's, it gives me purpose. It gives me my life purpose. It's, it's more... And um, but I think as a woman, maybe more so as well, you get criticised. Why you're not at home with your kids? A man has got maybe a bit more slack to be adventurous and go out. It's my perception. I might be wrong, but just a little bit. I thought, are oh, you a mother? Don't you think of your children? Yes, I do think of my children. And I've had really good people in in hospital. My psychologist. I had one nurse when I was crying again about this, and she said what you are showing your children or what you're teaching your children is resilience, that you can have something something so bad and you can recover from it and you can live with it. And my decision to, to keep climbing was really, it was a question of, do I let fear control my life or not? And I refuse to let fear control my life. I, I feel it very vividly. I've told you before that I'm... I am naturally scared of heights. I'm scared almost every time I go climbing, <laughs> but I love it. <laughs> I love that fear and it makes me feel alive. And if if I manage to um, turn that fear into something else or control it, and for me it's with my studying psychology, having done mindfulness, I know when we, the way I talk to you now, it's the rational brain is engaged. We think rationally, we can get along civilized. And, <laughs> and when the fear kicks in, the, the, the panic, it's that limbic system and trying to realize when that the rational brain sort of takes a backseat and the limbic system comes in and being able to control that and make that work for you because we need adrenaline in a way to be that hyper alert and do the right thing. I love it. It's And it, I've always been a person who, who likes to walk that line between exhilaration and panic. I love that really thin line. It's just, I've always been like that. <laughs> <laughs> so what were the physical aspects of coming out of hospital and, and, and you know, we've talked a bit about the mental aspects. What are the physical aspects that you had to go through and you had to step through to leaving hospital from the accident? Mm -hmm. So I lay flat on my back for nine weeks. I had nothing left. I might, when I lifted my arm, I had like really saggy tuck shop arms. <laughs> <laughs> wrinkles and <laughs> just saggy skin because my muscles were just gone and um my cardio fitness was just absolutely out of the window i couldn't walk i couldn't stand i could um yeah i couldn't really do anything so i after nine weeks um i had these external fixtures across my pelvis in the front like a, a, a towel rack in the bathroom that was taken out and the next day the physio came and said okay 
we'll get you to sit up and we'll try to walk. And I had this um, walk away, I had the, both my forearms were on it. So I had my weight there and then I, with wheels and I tried to walk and I remember I was sitting on, on the edge of the bed and I was a wave of nausea came over me. I was like, like because I hadn't sat up for nine weeks. I was allowed to sit up like what, 30 degrees. That was the max. And um, so I had to go back down. She came back in the afternoon. We got myself up sitting and then sort of had my arms on on the the forearm rests and I try to take a few steps maybe from here to the cupboard which was what two three meters and it was just excruciating pain my body felt not like a body it just didn't really work it was it wasn't walking it was sort of dragging myself and once I was dead I said, okay wheelchair back in bed and I was just exhausted so all my systems were just down. I was like really, really hard. But then um, once I had that um, out, the external fixtures, it was, I think, on the second or third day, a guy came from the rehab hospital, visited me in hospital and said, okay, yeah, you're a candidate. And the next day I was gone, they took me there. And <clears throat> it was quite different. I remember... I got there, got on my bed, and then um, I asked the one, the best thing was I was allowed, I was able to take showers again. For nine weeks I had bed washes, which is not really nice. It's not a nice feeling, just don't feel as, things are, as clean. So the two nurses helped me, they put me on a, on a shower chair, helped me undress, and I was in, I had a single room, I was in my bath, in the bathroom there, in that rehab hospital on my first day. And that was the first time when I saw myself in the mirror because opposite the shower was the the sink. And I was just really, really, I hardly recognized myself. I was, I was always quite fit and strong and I used to do CrossFit, so I was quite muscly. And um, it was just, yeah, just that <laughs> shell of, didn't look like me. It was I lost thirteen kilos, and I, I'm not big. I'm a, not not tall, and I'm I've never been big. So thirteen kilos was a lot. That was just skin and bones. And again, I just stopped there because it, everything hurt. I was sitting on that shower chair, and I in no position was I comfortable. I was like, oh, this is just so hard. And at that moment, the physio and the occupational therapist came in for an intake interview and they just looked at me and said, ah, oh, we wanted to take you to the gym, but it's probably not a good moment. So they left, I went back, they helped me back in my bed. And then I was like, okay, I just have to do it. I have to go. And then I said to myself, the more I do it, the less painful it will be. So I had maybe a half an hour nap, got in my wheelchair, I had to help me in my wheelchair and I rolled down the, the corridor to the gym because the idea at the rehab hospital was, A, they fattened me. Like, I've never eaten that much. <laughs> I mean, my stomach must have shrunk, but it was like, they said, you have to put on weight. So they like breakfast, morning tea, lunch, afternoon tea, dinner, 
after dinner tea and just I felt like a Christmas goose I was constantly in a food coma I'm in a constant food coma but so that was the one thing but the other thing was after breakfast gym then I usually lay down because I was so exhausted then lunch after lunch gym so you have two gym sessions a day so I rolled myself to um, the gym and they had those like the ballet, the barre, the barre, the two bars. Yeah, yeah, parallel bars. Yeah, exactly, the parallel bars. So they parked my wheelchair in front of them and they said, okay, your exercise will be just to hold on to the bars, stand up 10 times with the help of the bars. And that actually worked. It, they gave me endone before to just to get me high again <laughs> and mask the pain a bit but then so it actually worked and suddenly mm. I had that feel wow I can do something and then one of the other um, exercises was standing holding onto the bars and lifting my knees and one was to sort of um, lift um, abduct the legs and the last one was to stand on my tippy toes all while whilst holding on my bars and something clicked in me I had control back. I knew the more I'm going to do this, the quicker I will be able to improve. Because at that stage, I didn't know whether I was able to walk again properly. I didn't know whether I was able to run ever again. I didn't know whether I was able to climb. I had no idea if my left hand was ever going to work again. So, but it gave me that sense of, um, of, of control that I could do something to make my condition better and before I didn't have that and that was a huge difference for me and then um, I religiously every day twice a day I went to that gym and the first uh, few couple of weeks it was probably only a week uh, uh, sorry half an hour and then up to an hour and one and a half hour very easy easy things like after um I think I would have had to check my notes. I can't remember. After a while, they did a, what they call a walking test. They make you walk with my walkers, walker um, for two or three minutes to see how far I can get and then do that again after two weeks. But they had to stop it because my pulse rate went um, 180. And it was just because I had no zero um, fitness. My heart was going as fast as it could because lying nine, back on uh, flat on your back for nine weeks is not good for you. <laughs> Any kind of fitness. So that was probably the longest I could sort of muscular. I felt, yeah, I can feel I'm getting a bit stronger. But that aerobic fitness was really, really hard um, to, to um, improve. That took the longest, yeah. Mm. And eventually you got out of hospital mm -hmm. for, or the, out of the, eventually you got out of the rehab mm -hmm. hospital. What was that like? Um, it was very mixed. I had extremely mixed emotions. I, I was looking forward to be my, with my kids. Um, was also scared with my kids because I thought, oh, the roles have sort of reversed. They had to look after me a bit and I really wanted to be a mother again to to look after them. I was scared in a way because I realised I was a different person. I didn't know, am I going to still fit in into that life that I had before? Did people... Trauma, sort of post-traumatic post stress, it's very hard 
it resides somewhere beyond words in a way. It's very hard to explain to someone what has happened in you or what you've seen in your mind or what you've experienced. So I was like, I knew I had changed, but I didn't know if other people would ex um, understand, mm -hmm. if I could just go back to my job, to my um, life, but I was looking forward to the independency. I could... They, I remember the day when they um, dismissed me, or is that the word for this hospital? Uh, released me? That's from prison, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> it wasn't prison. Discharged. Discharged, Discharge, that's the yeah, word. Discharged. Yeah. Um, I spoke to the doctor because my friend Rick Phillips again, he came and picked me up, drove me home, and I was like, oh, I need to drive a car. And I asked the doctor in ho the rehab hospital, when can I drive a car? And he said, ah, oh, maybe in three weeks. I was like, nah, no way. So I um, managed to book a um, appointment with my GP that day. Like, so Rick dropped me off at the GP and then took me on and went to my GP and said, I'm going to drive my car. And she said, okay. And she sort of, she signed because they have to give you the tick. Otherwise the insurance doesn't pay. And I was like, Phew. so I got that because I, where I live, you can't get anywhere. You, you, I could have ridden a bike, but I couldn't ride a bike at that stage. So that, I could drive a car again, that gave me the freedom and I was at home. And um, then look, the support that I had made it really is the make or break. The climbing community was so, so amazing. I had a lot of people come and visit and sort of have that emotional support. I did a, a fundraiser because um, my sick leave was um, used up. I didn't have an income. I had a mortgage. I had two kids, and um, they helped me that. And then when I got home in the community in Browley, people came and helped me. They cooked dinners for me. Like I had friends, I gave them money to buy and uh, go and buy the groceries. They made me meals because I, I was I could walk, but I still spent probably eighty percent of my day in the wheelchair because, I, as I said, I had no um, no uh, endurance. Fitness, yeah. yeah, and also the school where I work at was really really good. They were super supportive. They let me come back three days, but only two periods per day, and they incrementally increased that. So. I had an immense support and also the, I had carers come to me, helping me with the washing, with the shopping and everything. So it was alone, you can't do that. It's, and my kids were amazing. Like my kids stepped up, they grew up in, through my accident, they really grew up. Yeah. When did you go climbing for the first time? Two weeks after I got back from hospital. <laughs> Really? Yes. I was like, God damn it! I need to get out of the house. So you were, so you were still in a wheelchair. Yeah. Time. Well, okay. I, it was at Thompson's Point. I drove my car there. I had my walking sticks. We walked down um, Vine Wall Gully, and the hardest thing for me was walking down because you have to walk. It wasn't a path. It was you sort of over the boulders, and it was again with Rick, um, and Troy was there as well, and. Oh, it took me a long time to get down those rocks and I 
Hard to have a break at the bottom of the rocks. I can appreciate that. <laughs> yeah. I, I'm not a fan of the hiking either. No, you know, no. the approach is, is not the fun <laughs> no, part of climbing. No, you know. So I, I think I sat there for about half an hour just trying to get my breath back. And then um, I top roped, I think, three lines. And it was, oh, it was a dog first. I was, it was, but I was back on the rock and... Um, I couldn't use my left hand. I had no feeling and no strength in that left hand. So it was a, a, a power belay. Sorry, <laughs> Brick probably did more work than me. But it was so good for me because oh, I felt at home again. I felt on the rock. I felt with people that I, uh, I really like in a place that I like. And it was a good thing for me. I didn't panic while I was climbing, when I came up to the anchor, as I said, I was on top rope. That was where sort of the breathing got a bit heavy and I was like, okay, Sabine, just calm down. And I made sure that I um, I climbed on the ends that I didn't have to unclip any any um, any bolts. So I was I was on 10 bolts all the way up, or quick, 10 quick draws. But Again, it was like, yeah, I I can do this. What about the first lead climb? The where was it? I can't even remember which one the first lead climb was. No, I think it was Hello Dolly at um, the point, um, the Ozone eighteen, and uh, it was just. Again, it was with Rick, I think. Rick, my... <laughs> I just know him very well. Um, him and his partner have been really, really supportive of me and I feel super safe with him. And it was a, a route that I, we always used that as a, a warm-up and I knew the climb and um, I remember I did it and I actually made it through the crux and then at one point I was like, oh having a bit of a <laughs> a moment and I hear him from down, hey, it's, it's only one more move to the jugs. And I was like, I heard him, I said, okay, come on, Sabine, you can do this. And I was scared as over gripping and um, pumping out because I had no strength left with my right arm. My left arm was just sort of a token effort <laughs> on the wall, but I made it. And um, yeah, it was really, really good. What the difficulty was for me was taking the falls again. That was the real challenge. Um, yeah, that was that was something else. And um, now it's it's standard procedure. I have to fall every time I go climbing. I have to fall just to get my mind into a a thing. And um, uh, it's probably getting my body convinced as well that it's it is safe to let go you did mention to me that your body would behave differently to what your mind would want it would freeze mm -hmm. there was an example you gave me where you were wrapping in yep so that was the very first time i go back got back to point perp and that was the um at point perp you wrap in to get to the ledge where you climb up from and um my mind didn't seem too faced i knew i mean i prepared my mind i said okay we're safe i triple checked at the prusik um not in the end of the rope and then i sort of walked backwards and then you get to the edge where you have to step over and sort of lean back and my body just froze so it wasn't the 
mind panicking. It was my body just going, nah, we're not doing this. No way, I'm not stepping over this edge. <laughs> and um, it was just, I don't think it was for long, but then I had a, a mate of mine who was maybe five meters across and I don't think he realized what was happening with me, but he just sort of went, you! And that just snapped my body out of it and I could go down. So, and that was, um, yeah, that was one of the experiences I've had, I think about three experiences. And that was, is a bit scary. I think I've told you as well that um, after 11 months or 11 months post accident, I went to Switzerland to see my family. I saw my brother again. My dad didn't come over when I had the accident. He's a bit too old. And I don't think he would have been a help. <laughs> I love him dearly, but <laughs> um, so I visited them and I I like the Swiss are very structured and um, in every every approach. So I checked out uh, at a climbing gym in Bern where, where I'm from. They offered these falling workshops and I emailed the guy who ran them and he said, look, yours is a bit of a different um, scenario than people who are just learning to climb and learning to fall. And he suggested to do one-on-one -on -one workshop and I did that and it was one of the best things I've done. Like he he had, we did sort of a bit of theory or sort of a bit of mindfulness and, and then practicing. And it started with on top rope, he gave me a bit of slack, I fell, then on lead, at the bolt, one move above the bolt, two moves above the bolt and so on until you're at the next bolt. And then the last step was being at the next bolt, taking slack out as if you wanted to clip and then let go. And that took me a bit um, because even if you fall, you've always got that little bit of resistance from the rope. People have actually told me that it's a huge difference whether you fall 20 meters with the rope going through the drawers or free falling. Apparently that resistance can make quite a difference. I've been told, I don't know. But, so I took the slack out and let go. And then something happened that scares me now as well. It's like, I can't remember my fall, but it was as if something was going across my mind, as if one frame of a film that was from my free fall accident for a, a fraction of a second passed and I was a mess down at the bottom. It was a good fall. He had, he soft it catch, clean, perfect. Soft. Mm. Absolutely not a problem, but something happened there in that feeling of complete free fall that triggered something. And um, yeah, it's, it's, it's there. It's always there when I'm climbing. And it's still there now? Yeah, it's still there. Like some days it's okay and I can, um, I, I've been doing mindfulness for about six years. That's really helped me. And he's given me one, one of the things that he's told me is at each bolt, have a quick check, stop consciously, see how your body feels, see how your mind feels. And I do that. And that really helps me to also see where that rational brain versus the limbic brain, <laughs> where that is. But um, it is, sometimes I go... When I, especially when I'm above the bolt and it sort of just comes, you have fallen from this height before and it's nearly killed you. And just things that are, or just even, again, it's not words. It's, it's, um, it's a feeling in the body. It's a feeling in the body. It's a feeling in the body. Yeah. And that's why it's so important in recovery 
from trauma to them, we integrate the body in the healing. And I think a lot of people don't understand that or say, oh, you could have, couldn't have done anything else or it could have happened to everybody. Yes, but trauma does not happen in the rational brain. It happens somewhere else. And if we don't um, address those areas, the emotional, the physical, then we can't heal. That's my, that's my um, conviction. And a full training for you is in part trying to train the body mm -hmm. to move past mm -hmm. that trauma. Mm -hmm. And the feeling, I guess, the feeling of falling that the end is safe and not, not pain, not death almost, yeah. Yeah. And it, sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. <laughs> um, physically, how have you progressed your climbing since coming back to it? I'm still unsending. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm, I'm still about two grades below what I was. But um, uh, what do I say? A lot of people say, and I think as well, I've recovered fairly quickly physical, but I'm, again, I'm super determined. Like I'm obsessed, determined, stubborn, whatever word you want to use. If I've got a plan, if I've got a goal, I'm going to go there. And so that's helped me. I've tried to um, go to the gym three times a week then a bit of my, my bouldering at the moment it's not with uni but i've done that so i've progressed quite quickly but what i what i'm struggling physically is and what i really loved about climbing is the the fight where you fight and you just go to your limit and you you try your hardest and even if you don't make it that feeling of you giving it your best is much better than you ever send where you didn't really try in my or even if you don't send but if you can say i've given my best that's awesome and my body is not ready to fight in a way it's sort of uh, it's hard to explain and I've, I've spoken i've went to see lee cozy a few times up in the blueies which i loved it's just a shame that he lives so far away and well, it's like four and a half hours one way so i can't really go but he sort of um suggested to try and replicate that um, feeling of fighting in the gym first go as hard as you can because the fear of falling and hurting is away so we can just go on to that physical thing and I did that and it sort of worked quite well. But then I, maybe a couple of months ago, I popped a rib in my back and I was lying flat for a weekend in my bed because it was like, like sciatic pain in my back. And again, I've spoken to my psychologist and she sort of said in a way, listen, learn to listen to your body. And in a way I've tried that. And I do sometimes at the end of the day in bed, I a, thank my body for what it's gone through and how much it's helped cooperated with me to come back and also to what does my body need. So, and I think at the moment it's more kindness, patience, and actually not the fighting going to that physical limit is not in the foreground. So at the moment, my main aim is fun at the crag doing mileage so that I get a bit of endurance back but being yeah really really kind I do yo try to do yoga every morning because if you if you have trauma you disconnect from your body in in different ways like my disconnection was through 
painkillers in a way. I had to stop my body feeling from what it was feeling because the pain was unbearable. But also when we experience something, if you witness a crime or something that you're not actually part of, our body reacts. And if, it's, if that's too, too um, horrible to, to process really, what we do is we disconnect from our body so not to feel anymore so we after trauma you have to learn to to go back into body again and allow yourself to listen to your body because i think our body tells us a lot and yeah it's it's that that's probably more at the moment to really get a feel of what does my body mean need at the moment i'm also also nearly 50 so i have to <laughs> So, okay, you're not 25 anymore. Slow down. <laughs> so, um, but yeah, and that's, it is in a way, it's a, a new experience for me because I think most athletes, we can relate. We ask a lot from our, of our bodies. We, and we, we thrive on that, that get strong, get um, fight, go hard, that becoming friends with, with your vulnerability in a way and taking, okay, it's time now that we, we take a step back. And um, yeah, approach it in a different way. Looking back at the whole experience or process of, of the accident and the recovery and coming back to climbing, um, what are your reflections? How, how has it impacted you? In so many ways. It's really when I look back, it's like I have two lives, one before the accident and one after. Um, I have gained a um, sense of gratitude that I did not have before. And I don't know if someone can have that without being so close to death. Um, I remember when I drove down to Browley, South Browley Beach, I only live about two, 300 meters from the beach, but I couldn't walk that far. I took my car and drove there and I just cried when I got there, but not, not in a sobbing way and not because I was sad, but it, because I was so grateful I can still experience this because my daily walks on that beach are my sanity during the week. Um, so that resilience, I've gained resilience. I've learned that, yeah, you can come back. I've, uh, I'm less phased about mundane things. Like I don't sweat little things anymore that much. I, I think I've become a better teacher in a way because I work with traumatized kids because I think it's given me a better understanding even though their traumas are usually completely different but of what trauma can do to you what, what, what it is that you yeah you go through hell you, you live with hell um, uh, my children I uh, I sometimes I just when I look at them I'm just yeah, overwhelmed with that gratitude, I'm still with them. I can still be their mother. And yeah, that's always very, very emotional when I see them. I think I can see them grow up um, and we're still here. So, but it's not just, an, it's, yeah, I think it's not just a negative experience. It's been in a lot of ways, as I said, that gratitude, that um, appreciation of life, yeah, I'm alive. And a lot of people take that for granted and it's bloody not. Life is not um, a given. Like that just 
being alive, being able to live my life to the fullest still. I can still do what um, satisfies me. Uh, yeah, it's it's been quite a journey. And getting to know my body and myself much better, it's given me more awareness about myself. Yeah, what happens within me. I've learned to sort of go within and listen, even though... Um, Another sort of side effect of trauma can be that people keep themselves busy or can don't stay in one place for a long time because when it's quiet and silent, then that's when what's within you comes up. And I've sort of learned, thank, thanks to my psychologist to a, long, uh, to a big part, but I've learned to sit with that and face that, face your demons. And, and um, yeah, I'm... In a way, it's made me, yeah, I'm brave. It's made me brave as well. Mm. 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 And where to from here? Where do you want to take your climbing? Um, I do want to try if I can get that fight back. That Not, not about grades, but that fight back, but in a patient way. When, like, as I said, I'm really busy with uni at the moment, so it'll take time, but... Um, maybe adventure as well. I want to explore lots of different places. In 2023, I'm going to go on a round the world trip where I want to climb in different places. Having adventures go off the beaten track and living life the fullest with climbing. Climbing helps me do that in a way. Yeah, but not, not I couldn't tell you um, I want to climb that grade or I want to do that sport climb, but more like I want to keep having fun and keeping pushing my limits which are somewhere different than they were before but trying always sort of challenge myself mm. <laughs> how will you know when you've got the fight back i will know on the wall if i can not think about falling but just go and my body is ready to we're not scared about hurting myself my body is still in sort of that thing i don't want to try too hard because i could i could hurt myself again when i don't have that <laughs> I will. I'm a fighter by a peaceful fighter. <laughs> I want to thank Sabine very much for sharing her story with us. I appreciate that taking us through such a traumatic experience is not easy and Sabine shares her vulnerability with both courage and strength in a very inspirational way. Thanks to you, the listener, for tuning in. Head over to thelayback.com for photos and links relevant to the show. Follow The Layback on your socials and send us a note. Let us know what you thought of the episode. Wherever you're headed today, I hope it's a low gravity day and we'll catch you on the next one. Thank you.